I'm always awed when I see a group of people who've made it through the doors to either an AA or to an Al-Anon meeting. Because for some reason, you and I were chosen to be here this morning. And we were given a gift called the gift of life. And there are many out there who have not, will not, or cannot receive this gift. Maybe because they don't know that we exist. I don't know. But for some reason, you and I have been given this gift of a life. And to be able to walk through the doors to a program of recovery that allows us to live happily and joyously if we choose to, to give us the freedom of choice. I'm grateful this morning that you and I made it through that door to this program. I'm married to a guy who's an alcoholic, who says he's an alcoholic. And I've learned a lot about living from Neil. He said that he was going to write a book called Living with the Wife of an Alcoholic. <laughs> you know, we have a book now called Living with an Alcoholic. He's going to write it, Living with the Wife of an Alcoholic. Now, this book will be in four volumes because I'm Neil's fourth wife. Now, we get along real good. And people say, well, how come you and Neil get along so good? And I said, well... And I, I kind of hate to admit this, but he lets me have my way in the things that matter, and I let him have his way in the things that don't matter. <laughs> now, we're building a new house, so I'm going to see just how far this we can carry this. <laughs> but Neil's a great AA, and he has a happy heart. And I have looked at his life to see what it is that... I, allows him to be happy and I found that he has a grateful heart and he's grateful for the sunrise and the sunset and for every moment of his life and you'll meet him tonight because he has a fine AA story I'd like for you to meet my beloved husband Neil there are times when he irritates the hell out of me 99% of the time I adore it. Neil has a fatal illness called alcoholism. It's cunning, it's powerful, it's baffling. Insidious, destructive, progressive, and it's fatal. The illness of alcoholism was described to me many years ago like this by a medical doctor who had years working with alcoholics. The tiniest one-celled animal, an amoeba, has basic instincts and basic drives. One cell. Man is a multicelled animal and has the same basic drives for warmth, for food, for reproduction. But the illness of alcoholism is so powerful and the compulsion so strong that it will deprive man of every basic drive he has. This will not respond to logic or to reason or to if you love me, you'd quit drinking. A powerful, compulsive illness that I, as a non-alcoholic, cannot comprehend. I've often thought that if I were an alcoholic, I would probably have died an alcoholic suicide. Because if I were losing my family, my friends, my job, everything that was near and dear to me, and yet I could not stop doing those things, I'm sure that the self-hatred and the self-condemnation would be so painful that it would condemn me to drink again. Thank God I'm not an alcoholic. I know that Neil did not have a goal as a youngster, that when he grew up he was going to be an alcoholic and he was going to lose all of his friends and lose his job and have it. You know, alcoholics go through wives like a dose of salt. And this wasn't his goal to end up in, he'll tell you a story, but... Somewhere along the way, he lost the power of choice. He lost the power to choose what his life would be. And he didn't do those things because he wanted to. He did them because he didn't have any choice. And I think this is one of the things we learn in Al-Anon, that when we realize the illness of alcoholism and that it took away choices... And that alcoholics don't do these things because they want to, because they cannot help it. 
They cannot choose differently. A powerful, insidious, fatal illness. I know that the answer is in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Anonymous. This is our answer for this illness. And we are, it is our number one priority in our life. Because without that, we don't have, we don't have anything else. And I know that sometimes I will deprive myself of the spiritual healing that I always experience by going to a meeting because I am too tired or too busy or too this or too that to go to a meeting tonight. And yet I have never gone to a meeting before I didn't feel better. And I could walk in with a headache and I could be tired and I could be upset and I could be whatever. But the minute I walked into the door, I didn't even have to speak to anybody. But the minute I walked into the door, everything was okay. And I was healed, spiritually healed. There was a presence and a power there that is indescribable. I have to feel that it was a presence of God through every pair of eyes and through every handshake and through every smile in that club room. But when I left that meeting, whatever was wrong with me when I went was healed. And yet I will deprive myself of that healing because I'm too tired tonight to go to a meeting. It's insane. Who was it that said that Planet Earth is just one large insane asylum. <laughs> I think that's probably right. <laughs> started going to AA meetings with Neil many years ago. And I loved the, the people in the program. And I loved the 12 steps. And I thought the meetings were just great. And I would listen through his ears to everything that was said. I'd filter it. Now, I hope he's hearing that. And I hope that he needed, I hope he, that he heard what I said because he needed to hear that. And I would make mental notes of what was said in the meeting so that we could talk about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> but you know what? I have done that very same thing last week with a newcomer that I took to a meeting. I have listened through their ears. Have you ever done that? And I hope that they're hearing this and I hope they're hearing that. And yet it doesn't work any more with the newcomer than it did with Neil many years ago. I cannot hear for another person. I have to hear for me. So there were some sick ones in our group. <laughs> and so I thought that they, they needed to be uh, saved. <laughs> and at that time I was vice president of the universe. And in charge of saving souls. <laughs> so I thought, well, we'll just start now on group and we'll save them. <laughs> and uh, they let me, you can tell how sick we all are, because they let me be chairman the first five years. <laughs> and I would call them during the week to find out what their problem was. And then I would center the program around their problem. Well, of course, I didn't hear anything. And I was out in Al-Anon maybe five or six years before I could hear. And I started hearing in 1964, I believe it was. And I'd gone to an AA convention in Little Rock, and her speaker by the name of Gert Bahannon, some of you may remember it. She was, I could hear her. So when I started hearing, this is what I heard. I am married to a person who has a fatal illness called alcoholism. And Neil will have this illness until the day he dies. And the only thing that he has going for him is a spiritual, the spiritual part of the program that he can use one day at a time. His sobriety is contingent on his spiritual fitness one day at a time. We have no guarantees that tomorrow he will not take the first drink or the first pill. A fatal insidious illness the second thing I learned is that I am powerless over this illness that I cannot protect his sobriety and I cannot keep him from taking the first drink or the first pill if he should decide to do so and neither can I provide him with the spiritual fitness he needs to stay sober 
And I tried to do this. I read all these fine books, and, and I would read him spiritual things that I knew would enhance his spiritual life. <laughs> but you see, I'm not responsible for his spiritual growth either. Thank God I'm not. That is his responsibility. And I don't have to push and to shove and manipulate. And I can just let let his spiritual life unfold as he and his God determine that. The third thing I learned when I could hear was that there are things that I must do in my life so that I can become the person that I'd want to come home to, that I'd want to live with, and that my God wants me to be. And this is what Al-Anon's all about. We don't talk about the alcoholic, what he does or what he doesn't do. We talk about how do we find the serenity to match calamity in our own lives. I'll go through the 12 steps as they appear to me today. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Of course, I've... I kind of like to rewrite the book and the steps, so I, I rewrote step one. <laughs> we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. I leave out the word alcohol because I know I'm powerless over alcohol and the alcoholic. But I'm also powerless over people and conditions and things. And I'm also powerless over the human Donna Lancaster. I am powerless. And when I get to thinking that I have power, my life becomes unmanageable. <clears throat> Step one also means to me that I should be able to live with another person <clears throat> without criticism, condemnation, or judgment. And that's oh, that's that's tough. I don't know if anyone in here is like I am, but <laughs> I like to I like to control, and I like to manage, and I like to be boss, and I like to fix things. And I like to, so it's been hard for me to, there are a lot of times my ideas I know are better than his. <laughs> and it's hard for me not to make helpful suggestions. But it says somewhere in Ireland on literature that we take on the role of parents of delinquent children. And not too long ago, we had just finished eating, and Neil hadn't drunk all of his milk, and I said, aren't you going to drink all your milk? <laughs> well, Neil is a mature adult, and surely he would, should be able to decide whether he wants to drink all of his milk or not. <laughs> so I haven't, real, I haven't let go of all those little suggestions that I have yet. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had believed that there was a creator. And I was raised over here in Kansas. I'm, I'm a Jayhawker. I was raised, born and raised in Kiowa, Kansas. My folks still live in South Amos. I'm a Kansas. And I'd see these wheat fields before harvest. <clears throat> and they were so beautiful. So I knew that there had to be something or someone who created who hung the stars and the moon in place and all this. But I had not believed that there was anyone for me. And all my life, I know what the big book is talking about when they say self-will run right. I'll do it myself. Thank you. I don't need any help. I can manage very well. And it was, that's the way it was. I was, I would not allow anyone or anything to help me. And, of course, a life built on self-will will ultimately self-destruct. We all know that, don't we? Yes, I know that. And so, ultimately, I self-destructed. But this is where I was. And so, when I came into the program, I found that those who were finding the peace that passes all understanding, that capital IT, had a power that they could believe in. And so my prayer at this time was, God, if you exist for me, help me to want to believe in you for me. I had to start with willingness. Willingness to be made whole. 
or to be restored to sanity, to be whole. So somewhere along the way, there came something, someone, to whom I could turn over my life and will. And this is a decision that I make now every day. I make the decision. Now, I had thought that you had to be 100%, but see, you don't. Isn't that great? We don't have to be 100%. All my life, I wanted my ego demanded me to be 100%. I had to be at the top of the class. I had to be number one in everything that I did. My ego just drove me, which is painful and almost destructive. I remember several it was years ago, before I was in the program, and I was getting off of a bus in Kansas City, Missouri, and there was an escalator that went from the, where the bus is parked downstairs. I had two crutches, a hat box, a purse, and a suitcase, and the bus driver said, Can I help you, miss? I said, No, thank you. I'll manage. Okay. <laughs> See, I couldn't. I had to do it myself. I had to show that I could do it. The first three steps of the program I take every morning before I get out of bed. I am powerless this morning to manage my life. I cannot do it alone, and I need help. And I come to believe that there is a creative intelligence and power that can restore me to sanity. And I make the decision to turn my thinking and my actions over to the care of that power. I don't have to be 100%, but I make the decision. I'm 100% making the decision. Step four has made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I had assumed that since Al and Al-Anon we use the same 12 steps that you use in, in AA, that step four was just put in there for filler. <laughs> and that you really, they really didn't mean for Al-Anon to take an inventory. But I was in the program a long time, and I'll tell you what, once I started this spiritual path, that if I don't, of my own willingness, continue, I will be forced by pain to continue. Because life is my classroom and pain is my teacher. And so I was in the program about nine years before I took my first inventory, and the reason I took it was so that I could go to the Friday night meeting and tell him that I'd taken my inventory. <laughs> well, that was the first time. And it really didn't. But I had, I, it was a start. Well, as I, I went on, I, I could see more and more. As, and I, I've taken several since then. I, I, now, whenever my life is not what I want it to be, if I am having problems in any area of my life, in relationships, with attitudes, with people, with certain... If I have a problem in any area of my life, I must go back and write my inventory again because my problem is not out there, friends. My problem is in here. And I must look again at myself and see what is wrong with me because in the 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, anytime we are disturbed, anytime we are disturbed, there is something wrong with me. The first, I wrote my, I wrote my inventories in periods of despair because I'm looking inwardly, and I found out some things about depression that I'll pass on to you because depression was my major character defect, and it was a big one. I was up and down and up and down all my life, and when things were going good, I felt great. When things were going bad, I felt terrible. See, it, it doesn't work that way. And so I wrote my, my in, an inventory on depression, a lot of it. And this is what I found. That I became despondent when someone wasn't acting the way I wanted them to act. Or something wasn't going my way. Self-will. I became despondent when I had done something I hadn't liked myself for. Guilt. I would become depressed when I was faced with something that I didn't want to do or that was painful fear I would become depressed 
when I would become emotionally and physically <clears throat> tired or exhausted. And then I didn't want the phone to ring. I didn't want the doorbell to ring. I just wanted to go to bed and put the covers up over my head and just resign from the universe. And I've done that several times. They just won't take my resignation. <laughs> I find that I get depressed. When I start thinking again, and this is so insidious, it scares me, that all answers depend on me. Oh, that just sneaks up on me so easy. And I, got, I get to thinking again that I have to run it. It is so subtle. And I start running things myself. And then I have to say, well, no answer depends on me. All I have to do is to be willing, have some degree of honesty, self-honesty, and be open-minded. That's all. I don't have to figure it all out. I just have to be willing, open-minded, and honest. That's all. So when I get depressed now, and I tell you, I, there is a red flag that goes up when I start getting off the beam because I start getting picky. And that's a red flag that goes up. I start picking at you. I start picking at Neil. I start finding fault with people. And that is my clue that there's something wrong inside of me. So I put these things in my mental computer, these reasons, and the answer will always come out. And I don't like the answer because it says emotionally immature. And I'll, I hope someday to be an emotionally mature person. And I don't know, we have a sponsorship program the same as an AA. And my sponsor is helping me to grow up spiritually and emotionally. And I'm finding that when I have someone to sponsor, I have seven things that I want them to do. And they are the seven things that today I continue to do that keep me okay. And the first thing is to take the first three steps of this program before we get out of bed in the morning. And the next thing is to read one piece of literature, either the one day at a time or something that is right for them. And the third thing I have them do is to spend just five minutes. Now, it can be more, but a minimum of five minutes just sitting doing nothing. That's all, just sitting. And the fourth thing is to make one contact a day, an Al-Anon contact. Either call on telephone. It doesn't have to be about Just say, hi, how you doing? Great day. Have a nice day. Hang up. Just one contact. The fifth thing is to go to three meetings a week. Because that's where, where I get well, same meetings. The sixth thing is to have a, a grateful list before, before, you go to, before they go to sleep at night. And to start out with, A, I'm take the alphabet. A, I'm grateful for the air I breathe. B, I'm grateful for the birds I see. C, I'm grateful for whatever. But if every night that I will do this or my person I'm sponsoring will do it, we go to sleep with an attitude of gratitude. And I usually fall asleep before I get to L. But it's a neat way for me to be grateful. And the seventh thing is probably the most difficult. is to look in a mirror and say, Donna Lancaster, I love you. I respect you. I appreciate the opportunity of expressing life through you. And look myself right in the eyes when I say that. <coughs> It's hard to do. But if, you, if a new person will do this for 30 days, their life will change. These seven things, their life will change. I guarantee it. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I had thought that I could change me and that if I failed, all I did was just redouble my efforts and just move forward. It's no wonder that I've been tired all my life. <laughs> when, when you're manager and vice president of the universe, it's it's a heavy job. And I was tired. I, I was thinking back that day. I fell asleep when I was in college. I fell asleep in all my classes. I was tired running my life and everybody else's life running the universe. But now I'm not, I'm not that way. I found a way because I resigned. <laughs>
But I, I don't found out that all I had to do is to be willing to be changed. This is the easier, softer way. And all I have to do is to be willing. And God does it for me. Seven, humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. And I find that I have shortcomings that are fairly constant. The situations change that make them bubble up to the surface, but the, the shortcomings are always there, it seems like. And self-pity is one that I've worked on for many years. I'm better at it. And I would find myself letting you know what a tough time I'm having. <laughs> and any time I can look at what I'm saying and see that it is to let you know that things are really tough for Donna today. You better believe that self-pity. And I've caught myself saying, well, I won't put on my makeup this afternoon and they'll see how tired and overworked I am. <laughs> That's self-pity. If they just knew what I was going through. Well, you see, I don't. I can just spot self-pity in someone else just like that. I can say they're feeling sorry for themselves. <laughs> but it is so difficult for me to see it in me. And yet I don't like to be around people who feel sorry for themselves. I just don't like to be around. And so therefore, if I want to be someone that people like to be around, I must remove self-pity from my inner being. And I'm working on it. I find that if I refuse to judge, I will not be resentful. Resentment and anger are the results of my judgment. I have made a judgment about somebody or something. And it won't work. I'm, in, I'm finding it's, it's easier to not judge than it is to get rid of the anger and the resentment. And so I'm trying to work on judgment. To let other people do and be exactly what they want to do and be. Free of my judgment. Do you know what? I can feel, and I'm sure everybody in this room can too, because we are hypersensitive people. I can feel any judgment when someone's judging me. They don't have to tell me. I can feel it. And you know what I do? I pull down the wall. So if I am judging someone else, I'm sure they can feel it. And that pulls down the wall between me and them. Neil is so great to let me be me. Now, I'm not as generous to him yet. I'm learning. But he lets me be me and do the things I need to do, free of judgment. And I'm not quite there yet. And I'm sure that he feels it the minute I make a judgment or a criticism of him. And I want to be free of that. I'm finding that I had a, have a character defect of blaming others when something goes wrong. <laughs> Several years ago, Neil wanted me to <laughs> Neil wanted me to press this jacket. We'd gone someplace and we're traveling, and so I pressed his jacket. And when I got through, I thought, well, I'll just press the collar of my blouse or something. And when I did, the whole collar burned out, and I thought, if he hadn't asked me to press his jacket, I wouldn't have burned my collar. But immediately, when something goes wrong, I look for someone to blame. But you see, that's not how, how it is. If I'm really honest, there's something within me that I must look at. I'm also working on projecting guilt. <clears throat> Several years ago, I had a little Al-Anon that was stupid, so sick she needed to go to meetings. And I'd call her and I'd say, Peggy, let's go to a meeting tonight and blah, blah, blah. One night she stopped me. <clears throat> she said, Donna, I wish you'd, make, you'd quit making me feel guilty when I don't go to meetings with you. <laughs> well, I can't stand constructive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> so after I quit crying <laughs> I saw that she was right that I used guilt as a lever to get other people to do what I want them to do and I have I have caught myself cleaning out the garage 
at a time when the person I had asked to clean it out would catch me. <laughs> I'm also learning that no matter what Neil brings home from the store, and it may not have been what I wanted from the store, that it's okay. And I might have wanted Rice Krispies instead of Post Toasties, and he brought Post Toasties. And so it's... <laughs> You understand, don't you, Brad? <laughs> I don't want to be a threat to anybody else. And put them down. To put someone else down. To make them feel less of a person. What's well, hard to do? I'm finding that I've been a poor receiver all my life. It's been hard for me to receive from someone else. And years ago, Neil told me, he said, Donna, it's so hard to give you something because you're hard to please. Well, of course, that just crushed me. <laughs> but he was right. So. And I'm trying, when I am not a gracious receiver, I am putting that other person down. And so I'm trying to learn to say, when someone says, gosh, you look, so nice day. Do you really think so? And they say yes, and I get two compliments. <laughs> but it's hard to do that. And to not apologize. See, it all goes back to self-worth. To self-worth. To have a good, healthy self-respect for me. And I'm finding that when someone says, well, you have a nice jacket on, but to not apologize for it and say, well, I had it in layaway six months before I could get it on. <laughs> but I've caught myself apologizing for me because of my feelings of unworthiness. And I'm working on them. Today I'm working on them. So that I can take, focus my attention not on me, but on you to get myself out of me and into you so I can feel, so I can love you. I can love you just to the degree that I love myself. See? No more, no less. No more, no less. And so in order for me to care more about you and my God, because God is in you, I have to love myself more. And that increases my capacity to love you. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? I know what to do to love more. Step eight has made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I made a list, list of persons I didn't like and why I didn't like them. And when I looked at it, honestly, it was my fault. I had misbehaved. I had asked for it. But I was still blaming you. But when I was honest, I could see that all of my sick relationships. I don't have time. He still writes my card. <laughs> <laughs> Is that me, really? Then I write it. I had a when I was I was an X-ray technician at one time, and one of the dentists had called me to take some pictures of a submandibular joint, which I didn't like to take those. And when he came up to look at him, he didn't like him, and he told me so, and I never did like him. <laughs> and when I got to step eight, I found out why I didn't like him, because he had criticized me. And my ego couldn't take it. See, ego is my problem. Self-will. Oh. And so I had to, I found a time when I could tell him. And he, of course, he didn't remember, but I remembered. But when I said, I've had feelings about you, I, I haven't... I haven't liked you because of this, and I'm sorry I made that. I'm sorry about it. It was okay. It was okay. Because in step nine, it says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. The first three steps get me right with God. The next four steps get me right with me. And the next two steps get me right with you. So now I can start living Steps 10, 11, and 12 
or maintenance tips. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I have several things that I use in step 10. One of is, I love you. Now, I used to, couldn't say that. And it's only been within the last year that I could tell my daddy that I loved him. And I'll stop right here. I was able, thank God, through this program, I've, I've been able to say the words because my pride and my ego kept me from laying it out there and to saying it. I was afraid I would appear stupid. I was afraid it would be uncomfortable. I was afraid I would be rejected. So I couldn't say to you how I really felt. My daddy is a practicing alcoholic. And last summer, I had spent a weekend with him in which he didn't remember that I was there. And when I got back home, I called him and I said, Daddy, how are you? And he said, well, it seems like it was a short weekend. I said, yes, Daddy, you were drinking all weekend. And he said, oh, no, because I'm the only girl, and if he could have not been drinking when I was there, he would have not been drinking when I was there. He adores me. And it just killed him. I said, Daddy, it's okay if you need to drink. Whatever you need to do, it's okay with me. I said, I love you just the way you are. Thank God I could say those words to him and not make him feel guilty and not put him down. Through the program, I've learned to say the words, I love you. I'm also learning to say, I'm sorry. And it doesn't matter whose fault it is. I used to say, well, I'll, I'll say I'm sorry as long as it's my fault. But if it's your fault, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Well, see, that's, that's ego again. Doesn't, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. But the words, I'm sorry, will clear the air and make it okay. So I must be willing to say the words. Another thing I say when I have a problem with relationships you may be right now I don't come right out and say you're right <laughs> I qualify you may be right <laughs> but I, I would in times past I would have to prove that I was right and what difference does it make who's right I can just drop it you may be right then it's okay see I'm finding that the great and uh, the great gift of this program, and it was mentioned last night, you mentioned it, is that it does not matter what conditions or circumstances are around me. My attitude is not contingent on people or circumstances around me. That is the freedom of this program. It's a very heavy responsibility, but it's also a great freedom. Because I don't have to wait for things or people to get right in order to be happy. I have a choice. I can be happy today or I can be miserable today. I can be resentful today or feel sorry for myself or I can choose not to. The choice is mine. You are not responsible for my attitude. Neither am I respo responsible for your inner feeling. And I'm glad of that. I'm so glad I'm not responsible for how all of you feel inside this morning. I'm just responsible for how Donna Lancaster feels inside this morning. And today I choose to feel good. I choose to feel happy today. That is a great freedom that I didn't know I had, that the program has given me. Step 11 is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. The first word in the 11th step, step is sought, to seek. And I had thought that I could just kind of breeze in and out of Al-Anon meetings and a spiritual awakening would descend on my shoulder and I could just walk off into the sunset and be happy ever after. <laughs> I have always wanted to get my life fixed and put it all, this is how I believe, and put it in a pretty little box and put a ribbon on it and say, this is it. <laughs> But see, it's not that way. It's not, I'll never get it fixed. It's unlimited. It's open-end. But I must continue seeking. To seek a conscious contact with God as I understand it. Because that's all I've got going for me this morning. 
I can lose Neil. I can lose everything in this world. I can lose every everything that means something to me. And if I don't have a conscious contact with God, I stand lonely and afraid again. And I don't want to be there anymore, friends. I have had all the miserable days I ever want. I choose not to be miserable anymore. And so I will seek diligently and with great effort a conscious contact with God, as I understand Him. A few years ago, I had a a time in my life that was tough, so I went back again to the fourth step and wrote pages and pages and pages on a fourth step, not on things or people, but on feelings and attitudes. And when I got through, I shared it, and I didn't find the answer. After all that trouble I'd gone to. (laughs) So I went to bed that night and I said, okay, what is wrong? I want to know because I want to feel good again. And somewhere in the middle of the night, something inside me said, it all has to go. And I said, do you mean all of it? And this something said, yes, all of it. So next morning I got up and the words were still in my mind. And so I said, okay, I give up. I give up my hopes and my dreams and my future, my plans. I give up everything that I, that I am. I give up the past. I give up Neil, all of our relationships, everything that we have materially. I just give it up. If that's what it takes, I am willing to release it. And there's something in me said, do you really mean it? And I said, yes, I really mean it. And there's something said, well, then, everything I have is yours. (laughs) But you know what's happened since that time? Because I did mean it. I have not been afraid. Because how can I be afraid of losing something that I've already released? Oh, it's a great feeling to not be afraid. I have had moments where fear has started to come back in. But I can recognize it and say, no, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid anymore. And for that, I am so grateful. I find it easier to release and to surrender. I never did like that word surrender for some reason. wonder why. (laughs) When I am more in tune with that to which I am releasing, which is the power, and I'm finding that this power is within me. I used to go to Sunday school and they'd say, kingdom of God dwells within. And I said, well, I know better than that. But you know what? The kingdom of God really does dwell within. And I know that because I can taste and I can smell and I can see and I can think and I can walk. And when I eat food, it doesn't matter what it is. There's something inside of me that changes it into heat, energy, and water. There's an invisible, intangible presence that dwells within me, that makes me me. And that's this power that's greater than I am. And if I believe that this power dwells within me, and it does, and that this power is unlimited in every aspect, patience, love, power, wisdom, forgiveness, compassion, understanding, then I also have to believe that this power dwells within you and it's amazing when I can think to remember that how my attitude towards you changes because the kingdom of God dwells within you isn't that great how great you are I'm trying to learn something about gratitude because that's a key and I have had moments of gratitude when I found the car keys that I couldn't had lost or when we got $500 back on our income tax I'd feel grateful but I, I have said the words many times with my head but there have not been all that many moments when I had the feeling. And I want a feeling of gratitude on a continuing basis. 
I've had moments of it. And I like it. I like the feeling of gratitude. So I've been changing, and this has only happened in the last few weeks that I found this out. Isn't it great that I can grow? I'm so glad. I'm finding that I'm changing my prayer life. All my life I said, God help me. God help me. Oh, help me. That's been my prayer. But when I say help me, I am indicating that there is a lack within me. I am lacking something. So I'm changing that help me to thank you. And that is acceptance of a gift that I already have. Thank you for the energy I need to go through this day. Not God help me through this day. <laughs> Thank you for the wisdom I need to handle this situation. And I only get it at the exact moment I need it. I can't get any of this good stuff before I need it. Just when I need it. But I'm, I've been, and it's been miraculous. What's ha I've had more energy. I've had, I'm handling things better. When I say thank you preceding the gift and that's the way we were that I was taught years and years ago say thank you before you get the gift because that is my acceptance of it but anyway it's, it's been fun to use that whenever there's been something that instead of saying help me I say thank you it's a fun thing to try having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Guess what's happening? A spiritual awakening. And the trip is, a, is fun. This is a spiritual journey that we are on and that I'm on. And I, I want to enjoy the journey. There have been some things that have happened to me. And I'll mention a couple of them. When I was born, I weighed three pounds, and my feet are where your knees are. There was no way that I could ever, and I didn't have any hip joints, and there was, the orthopedic surgeon said there would be no way I could ever learn to walk. Well, I had very wise parents who let me walk. As I started, I started walking, they just let me do it. And so I, I did learn to walk, and I went to school, only I was just half as big as everybody else. And I had thought at one time that I would wear artificial legs, but they, the, the surgeons told me that I would have to have surgery and amputate my feet, and I didn't want to do that, so I just discarded the idea. When I was a junior at the University of Kansas, and at that time I had a, they had a stool for me so I could reach the chemistry labs because I was so little. And I was grotesque. And kids made fun of me, and people stared at me. And I've thought back at those times, what was it? Because life was tough. What allowed me to go out of the doors of our home, out into the world? And I've, looking back, I had an attitude then that worked, and it was this. Piss on them. <laughs> But it saved my life. It allowed me to go out there and do it. And maybe I had to have that tremendous self-will, that ego, to allow me to live out there in that tough world. So when I was a junior in college, through a series of circumstances I won't go into, I had an, an opportunity to get some legs without surgery. It took six months to make them. And in December of 1952, I walked into a, a limb maker shop in Kansas City. And when I walked in, I was less than four feet tall. And when I walked out, I was five foot eight. And I have never been out in public since that time without my legs on. And it was like meeting the world on tiptoe. And I could drink out of water fountains. And I could see the food in cafeterias. And I could talk to people. And it was a great, great awakening for me and I, I people ask me now was it was it tough to learn to use your legs 
And see, I don't remember the tough times. And it may be something like the alcoholic's desire to stay sober. Because I had gotten a glimpse of this world, I would pay any price to keep it. No matter how much self-discipline or how tough it was or how many times I fell down. And I would drop my books and I couldn't pick them up. And the wind would blow, it was windy, it's windy in Kansas, and the wind would blow me over. No matter how tough it was, and I don't remember the tough times, I liked this world so much, much, that I would pay any price to stay in it. I had a desire. And I'm sure that that's something of the desire that the alcoholic has to stay in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and stay in this world that is so much better. I'd always wanted to learn to fly. And when I was in high school, I took aeronautics. And I read all the Lindbergh books. And, but I didn't think I could ever learn to fly because my, I couldn't reach the pedals. <laughs> but about, it's been over eight, about eight and a half years ago now. Neil and I had gone somewhere. And on the way back, we'd driven, I think, 800 miles that day. And he said, boy, I wish we could fly. <coughs> I said, I wish we could fly. And he said, why don't we? So the next morning, we went down to the bank. And we borrowed money to to buy a plane that we couldn't fly. <laughs> and the banker didn't even ask us if we could fly the plane before he loaned us some money to buy it. <laughs> so I started taking flying lessons, and I got, six months later, I got a private license. Two years later, I got an instrument rating, and I now have 1,700 flying hours. And let me tell you what I learned about Al-Anon. My, my instructor would say, Donna, if you get in trouble, remember power will always get you out of trouble. And I thought, boy, wow, that's just like Alanon. <laughs> but it, he added, if you follow the numbers, you won't ever get in trouble. And I thought, yes. If I follow the 12 steps, I won't have the turmoil and the heartache and the misery. I have to follow the numbers. I also found from flying that if I don't learn the lesson from the experience, I will have to re-experience the lesson. And that has helped me in my living because when things go wrong, I, I can say, what do I need to learn from this? Rather than, oh my God, why is this happening to me? It changes my attitude from a negative to a positive. Because if I don't learn the lesson, I will have to re-experience the lesson over and over and over until I learn it. I also found from flying that uh, I was programmed by what people thought of me. I remember that uh, I knew that all the guys at the airport were watching me. And I'd be coming in for a landing, and Jerry and I were talking about this yesterday. We knew they were watching us, didn't we, Jerry? Will she or won't she make it down this time? And they had bets on me. And I was thinking about what they were thinking about my landing. And I realized that I, if I could not learn to discipline my thinking to where I was and not be concerned about what other people were thinking, that I couldn't make it. I couldn't make it down. And so I, w I started seeing that when I became uncomfortable or ill at ease or started hurting, that it was usually because I was thinking about what someone else was thinking about me. I'm learning that I like for you to like me. But if you don't like me, see, it's really okay. Your, my self-worth today is not contingent on whether you like me or not. I'm free of that. I also found from flying that I have to learn one thing at a time until it becomes habitual. Does that sound familiar? By off-repeating these acts, they become habitual, and the help rendered becomes natural to us. When I first started learning fly, learning fly, I would hold on to that stick like this, and I could not even look up like that because I would lose control of the airplane. Of course I wouldn't. 
and they have just pried my fingers off the wheel. All I could learn is just hold on. Well, gradually I learned just one thing at a time until I, it became comfortable. Now I can go out and just, just fly. It's no big thing. But see, by off-repeating these things, they become habitual. My thinking, my attitudes become habitual. And then the help rendered becomes natural to me. I'm finding that if I am living within God's will for me, I know it. I know it by how I feel. If I don't feel right, I'm not living within it. But I'm finding that if I am, that everything I need is provided for me. I was giving the mental acuity, the physical coordination, the willingness, the persistence, everything I needed to learn to fly. Also, the money. I thought money didn't have anything to do with God's will. But I learned a few years ago, in, play, to, in order for me to accept money, I changed the word money to the word freedom. And it made a lot of difference. I can accept freedom. Money is freedom. Freedom to go and freedom to give and freedom to whatever. And I, it, I'm finding it easier to deal with the money when I, when I use the word freedom instead. I'm also finding and flying that there are many times when I'm in darkness and when I'm in the clouds and I can't see where I'm going. But there is a built-in instrument system in that airplane. And if I will monitor the instruments and make a few little changes, that when I get to my destination airport, I will break out of the clouds and the runway will be right in front of me. And they'll say, Donna Lancaster, you're cleared to land. Oh. Oh. But I have to trust the instruments. That's the first law of instrument flying. Trust your instruments. And sometimes I need more trust because the instrument guidance system is within me. And there are many days that are cloudy and I cannot see where I'm going. And those are the times that I must switch to my instruments. Trust them. It's easy to fly when everything's going fine and all the instruments are working. But it's tough when something goes wrong. And I find that I am a whiz at working these 12 steps when everything's going smoothly. And it's tough to work them when they're not going smoothly. But I'm learning that it's okay and that I can match calamity with serenity. I have flown in darkness and in the clouds and on beautiful days and I always feel loved and cared for. And I have the feeling that all is well. And I am so grateful for that feeling that I'm not alone and I choose to not be alone anymore. Thank you for asking Neil and I to come to Liberal and sharing with you. I can feel that you love me. I like it. And I do love you. As much as I am capable of loving you today, I love you. Because I see God in you. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. And may the rains fall gently on your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. God bless you. Thank you, Donna. But all those who care to, would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.